0: If you want to join me this morning, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke in the 11th chapter. I love that song, The Power of the Cross. The cross is powerful. The power of the cross is what we need. There's not anybody in this room this morning that that does not need the power of the cross at work in their lives. We're studying through the Gospel of Luke because what what we need most is to have an accurate and clear picture of, of Jesus. Who He is, what He said, what He's done, what He's promised to do. And so we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves in this section when Jesus is offering some pretty, some pretty stern warnings. Where we left off last week was simply saying this, that a warning is given that you change a potentially destructive pattern of behavior. And we won't go into all that we studied last week, but Jesus gives some very clear, very significant warnings that all of us need to, to listen to. One of the warnings we read last week was that there are a lot of people in the world who think they're going to heaven, but Jesus says on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never, I never knew you. And so it's important to know who Jesus is, what he's promised to do. And when we get here to this section of Luke 11, he's still going to give some very significant warnings. If I could go on and, and say what the warning is. This morning, it's be very careful of cleaning the outside and neglecting the inside. We've already heard and read and prayed over 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, the scripture says, looks at the the heart. Now, Jesus is the center of all the Bible. Uh, We've been saying for a few weeks now, we're just getting our heads around this. In the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. Anytime you open up the Old Testament, whatever chapter you're in, you always want to ask the question, where's Jesus and what's this saying about Jesus? All of the Bible is about Jesus. In the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the Gospels, Christ is revealed. In Acts, Christ is proclaimed. In the Epistles, Christ is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Christ is anticipated. He's coming He's coming again. All the Bible is about is about Jesus. So I want to give you a few uh, just opening illustrations for um, on how not to view the Bible. I brought with me this morning a book that I've had on my shelf for a little while. It's Four Complete Novels by Charles Dickens. I I thought it would be a good idea at some point in my life to read Charles Dickens and some of his novels, and I've made it three pages into several of them. (laughs) But here, uh, Four Complete Novels, we've got Great Expectations, we've got a novel called Hard Times, we've got A Christmas Carol, and we've got A Tale of Two Cities. That's four different books in one book. It's called An Anthology. An Anthology. And A Tale of Two Cities, you can read A Tale of Two Cities, and it doesn't really have anything to do with A Christmas Carol. And A Christmas Carol doesn't really have anything to do with hard times, and hard times doesn't really have anything to do with great expectations. Now, they're all, I'm assuming, I've not read them from themselves, they're they're good stories, but you don't have to read one in order to understand the others. Now, some people think that's what the Bible is. The Bible's got 66 books in it, Genesis through Revelation, but I want to tell you that's not, the Bible is not like the Dickens Anthology. Genesis has everything to do with Exodus. Exodus has everything to do with Leviticus. Leviticus has everything to do with Numbers. And all of the Old Testament has everything to do with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. These books are not unrelated to one another. God has inspired the, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's inspired a book that you would know what it is that you most need to know. They give you a, a, another example, a book I actually have read author I've read several books of, uh, a lady uh, named Agatha Christie. How many of you have ever read an Agatha Christie novel? She writes mysteries, for the most part, murder mysteries. And so, so just suppose that uh, I had two people standing here before me, and I took this book. I'm not going to do this because, uh, well, I'm not going to do this, but, but suppose I, I tore this book in half, and, and I gave uh, one person the first half of the book, and I gave another person the second half of the book, and, and, and the first person, what they're going to read is the crime that's been committed, Uh, they're going to read that uh, Agatha Christie always writes a murder mystery, that somebody's died and then gives a few hints on who did it and so on and so forth. But the person who has the first half of the book is not going to have any resolution. They're just going to know, here's a problem... And they're never going to know how that problem was solved. Now, the second person who gets the second half, they're going to begin to read. And it's not going to make a whole lot of sense, but they're going to understand at the end, here's the guilty person and whoever the mystery solver is, if it's Miss Marple or, uh, or, or whomever, if you're familiar with, with uh, Agatha Christie's book, uh, she'll come to a resolution and they'll say, here's the resolution, but I don't really understand the problem. Does that make sense? In the Old Testament, we're clearly told, here's what the problem is. You know what the problem is? Sin. Sin. That's what the problem is. That's what the crime... You want to talk about the crime of the century. The crime of creation is we sinned against a holy God. Now, you read through the Old Testament, and it's building the case. And, and, and God begins to give some clues, and God begins to give some hints on here's how we're going to resolve it. And then we get pictures of Jesus from, from, from Genesis 3 on and Genesis 3.15. It's the first reference, the first prophetic utterance of who Jesus is going to be. And God basically says somebody's going to come, and they're going to solve this problem. But at the same time, we're given pictures of Jesus. We're also given clues and hints on who who the hope isn't. I mean, Moses is a great leader, but ultimately, he's not the Messiah. Joshua is a conqueror. It has great victory, but ultimately, Joshua is not the Messiah. David's a great king, but he's got some shortcomings too, does he not? And so all through the Old Testament, God's doing two things. Here's a picture of the ones to come. And also here's how salvation does not come. And so that's why it's a huge moment when Jesus is entering the Jordan River and John the Baptist looks at him. You remember what he says? There he is. There's the Lamb of God who takes away. What's the problem? Takes away the sin of the world. Now, man looks on the outward appearance. So for the most part, when we want to write the script, when we want to say, here's what the problem, we focus on all these outward things. If we just get the economy right, if we just get education right, if we could just get politics right, if the government would just, we all these things outside of ourselves because here's a fundamental lie. We're led to believe that the problem is outside of ourselves and the solution is inside of ourselves. And that's totally upside down. The problem's actually inside of ourselves. It's in our heart. The solution It's not within. The solution is actually something outside of ourselves, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to find somebody here in Luke 11 who had some of the clues, but but his guess on the solution is very much off base, and we want to study him and understand his perspective because it's a solution. His false solution is very much alive and well in the world today. So in Luke chapter 11... Still in context from last week, Luke 11, verse 35, sort of a, sort of, let's pick up on that verse. Therefore, Jesus is giving a warning, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So let's pick up on that warning and begin to build into this morning's text. What Jesus is saying is everybody, everybody has a code, uh, for lack of a better term, that they live by. Everybody has a, has a core set of beliefs that determines how they, how they uh, make decisions. It determines what their priorities are in their life. Everybody has a light, so to speak, that they go by. But Jesus says, you've got to be careful because if the light, if the code, if the standards, if the practices, if the beliefs that you live by are actually darkness and not light, what's going to happen? And everything's wrong. So he says, therefore, you've got to be careful lest the light that you live by is Darkness. If then, verse thirty-six, your whole body is full of light, having no dark part, it will be wholly bright. And when a lamp with its ra- as when a lamp with its rays gives you light, now here's our text this morning. While Jesus was speaking, let's notice first of all who comes up to him. Who is it? Verse thirty-seven. A Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. So let's talk for a few moments about. We've got two people who are going to interact. Who are they? Jesus. And then we've got a Pharisee. Now, we've been seeing Pharisees all through the Gospel of Luke. We've talked a little bit about who they are, but if we want to get the message that Jesus has for the Pharisee, we've got to understand the Pharisee's perspective. Because the great surprise as we get to the New Testament is that those who are most familiar with the Old Testament... And in particular, the books of the law did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. This is the all-time case of missing the forest for the trees. If we're to understand why Jesus and the Pharisees are constantly at odds, we've got to talk a little bit about how we should view the law. You know the law, right? If We talk about the, the, the Old Testament. Here's what we've already said about the Old Testament, so let's say it again. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus, and that includes the law. So I want you to hold your spot here in Luke 11 and turn back with me to one of the books of the law, the book of Exodus. And we'll look at what's probably the most well-known portion of the law, the Ten Commandments, here in Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 20. And really, I want you to see one extremely essential, non-negotiable, Vitally important. Have I given enough qualifiers yet? <laughs> Extremely telling verses. Exodus chapter twenty, verse one. And God spoke all these words, saying, "All right, God's about to speak to them, and I'll, you got to see what's the first thing He says. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of." slavery. That's a declaration of God's redemption. Okay. Right. We're We'll all be on the same page. God is saying, I've redeemed you out of slavery. I mean, you want to talk about a picture of the coming redemption in Christ Jesus. This is it. Uh, the, the, the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt by a terrible taskmaster. His name was Pharaoh. That's a literal historical event, but it means much more. It's got greater implications. It's a picture of how Christ is going to redeem us ultimately from sin. Now, he's already said, I've redeemed you. I've already done it. They're out of Egypt. They're on their way to the the promised land. So here's really, really important, essential. God redeemed them and then gave them the law. You see this? So you see, I'm not making this up. Verse 2, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've acted. I've done it. I've completed it. I've finished it. And then he gives them the law. You see this? Because this is vitally important. The law does not redeem us. You see that? It's important. The law does not redeem us. Who redeems us? God redeems us. How? By grace. We're redeemed by grace. And then once we're redeemed, then he says, here's the law. The law is not the means to redeem us. The law is actually what God blesses us with to show us we need redeeming in the first place. Where does God look? Not on the outward appearance. Where does God look? On the heart. And then you get into these 10 commandments and you and you allow God to, uh, <laughs> to tell you what he reveals about your heart because you know what's in your heart? All these things that are in the law that he tells you not to do, right? The law is like a, uh, Paul, Paul says this in the New Testament, the law is like a mirror. When we look in the law what we should see is there's somebody who needs saving. There's somebody who needs cleaning up. Now, where does man look? The outward appearance. You see, here's this slippery slope, and here's the danger. Is this group, particularly the Pharisees, they began to take the law and they began to alter their outward appearance to make it look like they were in conformity with the law. And then they, as Jesus is going to say, we'll see it. And then they closed the door on authentic redemption, and conversion. The law does not save us. The law shows us we need to be saved. And then once we are saved, here's the real gist. The real gist is that the law then teaches us how to receive the blessing of the Lord once we are saved. Let me give you an illustration. Um, When I was 16 years old, my dad had passed away when I was 15, and, and then he'd left me, uh, as an inheritance, a little bit of, a little bit of money. So I, I had a blessing from, the, from, from my dad when I died, and he gave me some money. And with that money, I bought my first truck. It was, uh, uh, I loved that truck. It was a stick shift. When I bought it, I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. And if you ever want to know how to drive a stick shift, buy a car that the only way you can get around is to, you know, drive a stick shift. And then you'll just, uh, the, the uh, uh, skill to do comes from, comes from doing. Now, how did I get the truck? It was a gift, right? I'd not earned it. My dad gave it to me, in, in essence, by giving me an inheritance. It was sort of a gift of grace. If we, For the sake of our illustration, we'll use that, that word. I, I It was paid in full by somebody else, and then I received it. Now, once I got the truck, if I wanted to navigate safely, what do I have to abide by? Laws, right? Traffic laws, stop signs, yield signs, um, uh Turn your blinker on. There there are things that I want to avoid doing, like charging out across four lanes of traffic. And and there are also things I want to do. It involves both. And that's how the law works. Now, uh, having received a gift of grace called life, called redemption, called salvation, the law then comes on and says, now that you've got life, here's how you ought to live. Is this making sense? So do you see how destructive it is to, 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 to turn the law into the means of life instead of the governance of the life that was given to you by grace. So Jesus is sitting down. We're in Luke 11. Jesus, his name, Yeshua, literally means the Lord saves. So the Lord saves, sits down with a Pharisee face-to-face and they're going to have a conversation. And, and it's important that we understand and, and read this conversation because while they're not Pharisees, uh, by name today, that theology and that mentality is very much alive and well. Because it's a mentality that says in order to get to heaven or in order to be right with God, in order to be saved, there's something that I have to do to earn him to do that. Now, question, did the Israelites obey the law and then God redeemed them and said, Oh, you're so nice. I'll go down there, there to Egypt and get you up out of there because you're obeying, obeying my law. So, but no, he redeemed them and then said, now that I've... Given, get liberated you from slavery. Here's the law. So we get over here to Luke 11 and, and Jesus is going to talk with this Pharisee. So let's look at their behavior and then let's look at their words. Let's pray together and then we'll study. Father, help us. Help us to understand all the Bible points to Jesus and then in particular how this text, what it reveals about Jesus by extension what it reveals about us in our need for Jesus help us to be a humble people who are eager eager for the word of god we pray in jesus name amen one way that i try to remember the purpose of the law they're really simple the law reveals our sinful state the law reveals our need for a savior the law reveals god's standard that's what the law is about <coughs> And then we get here with a man, the Pharisee, who views it differently than Jesus. So let's find out what happens. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So right off the bat, we see the Pharisee's focus is on external behaviors. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best place in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Now, God's intention for the law was to reveal our sinful state, to reveal our need for a Savior, and to reveal God's standards. Now, these are the functions of the law, but like everything God has made, there are misuses and there are counterfeits. And at the top of the list, instead of the law being used to reveal your need for salvation, it can be manipulated and interpreted to be the very means of salvation. And when this happens... A person begins to measure his or her own standing with God by how they abide by the law. Now, this is how deep in this man the Pharisee's gotten that he sits down to eat with Jesus and he sees himself as cleaner than Jesus. You see how problematic this is? He actually sits down to eat with Jesus and he looks over at Jesus and he says, The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus. Did not first wash before dinner. Now, when this happens, when you begin to use the law as some sort of external measure of behavior as a means to seeing, here's my standing before God, what happens is you begin to measure your standing with God based on your performance, and this is important too. And when that happens, you begin to measure yourself by how others look, and then you've got yourself trapped because in order to make yourself look better what do you have to do you have to make everybody else look worse welcome to first century judaism and welcome to the teaching and training of the pharisees and jesus says not only do you not enter yourselves but now you've precluded others from entering also question is this is this mentality still in existence today Jesus said the summation of the law is this, that you'd love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you'd love your neighbor as yourself. So here's a simple way to measure if you're, if you're, if you're adopting the law in a code of behavior appropriately. Do you begin to, to love other people more or do you begin to be much more judgmental of other people? That's the bottom line, right? And so, so here we've got Jesus. Let me give you a few things that we can learn by Jesus' behavior is is number one, number one, we are to be willingly involved in the lives of others even if they do not hold our beliefs. We are to be willingly involved in the lives of others even if they do not hold our beliefs. What do we mean? I mean that the Pharisees and Jesus didn't agree on anything. But I want you to notice what happens While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee, this person who views life completely different, who who Jesus probably doesn't agree with anything on, he invites him to dinner. And what does Jesus do? What does the Bible say? So Jesus said, I'm not stepping foot in your house. So so Jesus said, are you kidding me? I'm not coming near you. What does the Bible say? A real succinct phrase. So Jesus went. You know, Jesus will sit down with anybody. Jesus will go to anybody's house. They're in anybody. So so here's, here's a danger of external of external emphasis as we begin to categorize everybody. And then in our self-righteousness, we say up at all, all high and mighty, well, I'm not going to associate with them. And I'm not going to talk to them. And I'm not going to talk to them. Uh, and, and so what begins to happen, even in a church, is you start to build up these walls. And you see, Jesus doesn't do that. The Bible says when the Pharisee invited him to dinner, he went. The priority of Jesus throughout... Throughout Luke's gospel is people. Now, you can go back. We won't do We won't take the time this morning. But if you went back to Luke, and you begin to read chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. What's Jesus always about? Hey, he'll get in the boat, go all the way, make a long, arduous journey across the sea to go see the demoniac legion, one person. And you remember what happens after Jesus heals them? They all begged him to leave. So, in essence, Jesus, Jesus took his whole schedule about, about one person. And then he gets back and Jairus wants him to come to his house and the woman with the bleeding and then the feeding of the 5,000 and then on and on and on and on. Jesus' priority is people. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went. Now, Jesus and the Pharisees, we've seen by this time, clearly do not agree on very much. But when one of them invites Jesus into his home, Jesus agrees to go. Now, today we live in a culture of yellers and screamers, do we not? They just turn on the television, and they, you just go to the channel, and there's somebody with this opinion, and here's somebody with that opinion. What do they do it? They just scream, and we kind of measure whoever screams the loudest wins the argument. It seems like everyone has their cause, their, their slogan, and people just yell and yell and yell at each other. And so we're trained to identify with a particular group. We pick sides, and then we just scream. Jesus sat down and ate with people who disagreed with him. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 18. Just listen to this, and I want you to see how, uh, how much it's not in line with the spirit of our age. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably, with all. Do you know who wrote that? A former Pharisee. <laughs> a Pharisee who was converted by the grace of God. The Apostle Paul. He had said, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. That would have been a time in his life where Paul wouldn't have. No, a simple application. The, the self-righteous and the haughty in spirit disassociate themselves from people who don't agree with them. Jesus in humility Jesus, in humility, when he was invited somewhere, he went. The people that disagree with you in your life, that don't hold your belief, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you say, that Bible is nonsense, old-fashioned, get with the times. <laughs> when you interact with people who don't believe as you do, you want to leave them with them thinking, there's a person that cares about me. And there's a person that loves me. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance, the scripture says. How did Jesus treat you when you were his enemy? While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Amen? Amen. So we're to willingly be involved in the lives of others, even if they do not share our own beliefs. You don't cut yourself off. Don't, don't, uh, uh, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lamp and place it under a bowl, but on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Bless those who persecute you. Never be conceited. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. One way you know you live and love like Jesus is you receive invitations from people who do not agree with you to sit down and eat and talk. Jesus does not call his people, the church, to completely sever all ties with the unbelieving world. The old saying is, we are to be in the world, but not of it, right? We've all heard that saying. Unfortunately, and increasingly today, it seems more and more who claim to follow Jesus are of the world, but not actually in it. Their priorities and what entertains them and what they think about and participate in is of the world, but then at the same time, they put up some sort of artificial barrier and deceive themselves into thinking they are above the fray. And you know who else did that? The Pharisees did that. Now let's balance this now with the second principle. So first, we're to be willingly involved in the lives of others, even if they do not hold our beliefs. Eat with people. Talk with people. Be with people. Be involved in their lives. Share the gospel with them. uh, Be ready to accept criticism and and accept questions. And, And again, I want to just tell you the best communication. This needs to be said probably over and over and over in this culture the best form of communication is always face-to-face, always face-to-face. We just remember it this way, face-to-face better than Facebook, all right? Face-to-face, conversing with somebody is, is always better than... Uh, 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 a text or an email when God wanted to reveal himself to us, what did he do? He came from heaven to the world face-to-face, incarnated, didn't blast us with the email. I know if you're going to send an email there, but I'm just telling you we've all seen these theological discussions that start to take place online. And, and at the end of the day, it doesn't really seem to, 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 to lead much of anywhere. Uh, so you just encourage, Hey, can we go get a cup of coffee? Can we sit down face to face or even better? You'd have somebody invite you as the Pharisee did. Hey, come to my house. Let's talk. But then you've got to notice Jesus goes to his house and then he does talk. He does share truth. He does speak. So we've got to balance this because, there, again, in our day, there are some Christians who say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be involved. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to talk. I'm going to go to their house. and I'm going to sit and we're going to eat. But then they never speak truth. And, and, and they write it off as some sort of victory that we got invited to their house But then when you were sitting there, you didn't actually share the truth. Jesus goes to the house, but he doesn't stop there. That brings us to point number two, is that we are to readily speak the truth even to those who do not agree. Jesus willingly goes into the home of the Pharisee, but he does not mute his convictions. He doesn't say, well, they invited me to my house and, you know, it'd be rude of me to go in here and and say anything, so I'm just going to keep my mouth closed. You feel this pressure, don't we, as Christians in this world? it seems all the attention is given uh, to, to opinions and convictions that are not in line with what the scripture would teach. So we feel this pressure to just, let's shrink back, let's, let's disengage, let's close the door, let's build up the barrier, let's put the, let's, put the, let's put the light under a bowl. And maybe we'll be able to see it, but we'll just keep it to ourselves. That, in the definition of Jesus, is salt that's lost its saltiness, its flavor, its taste. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So the Pharisees had all sorts of rules and regulations for just about everything. Uh, uh, Their entire lives were structured around ceremonial laws that they thought kept them clean. Uh, Again, the law's purpose was to shout out, You're unclean, and you need a Savior to clean you up. All of their religion was on the basis of external behavior. How does it look on the outside? So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, we get this great statement of Jesus where he says, you don't have to turn there, uh, but Matthew 6, listen to what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corner. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, now... Jesus does not just proclaim in a public sermon. You see this what he's been doing in the early portion of Luke 11 is, is this public proclamation. We might call it preaching, but then he also procl- pro- proclaims I'll get the word out in a minute, proclaims truth in one-on-one conversation. And we need to do both as well. What if you went to eat at a restaurant and the only thing they cleaned was the outside of the dish? Would you would you go back? Would you continue to go there? I mean, they got that they got the outside of the dish spotless, right? Suppose you went today to, to, to eat lunch at the close of the service and you get somewhere, and man, you see them just going out in the kitchen and, and then they turn it around and it's got food chunks in it and so on and so forth, and they put that on your tray and say, uh, we, we cleaned it all up. I mean, it was obvious what Jesus is, is saying here. Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside. See this word? Inside. You are full of greed and wickedness. You want to know something? The outside is easier to clean, isn't it? The outside's easier to clean. I mean, we all came this morning, showed up in the church. I mean, I put my tie on, my coat, and the outside. I want to get the outside. Well, we're always focusing on the outside. Let's get this outside cleaned up. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Now, believing this statement is incredibly freeing. You know that you don't have to waste your life worrying about what everybody thinks about your outside? Isn't that liberating? Some people will spend all their time, all their energy, all their money trying to fix up, dress up the outside. And the dirtiest part of us is the inside. Now, here's where we got to get caution. No amount of money energy, work can clean that up. That's why it's frustrating, isn't it? That's why we'd rather focus on the outside. Because here's what the law is revealing to us. You're dirty on the inside, and here's something that's really hard for us to accept. You ready for it? It's really hard for us to accept. And you can't clean it up. You don't have a mop that big. You, you know, Soft scrub doesn't reach that far. You, you, you say, I can clean up my outside, but, but then there's Who can clean up the inside? And that's the question. Glad you asked. I know you didn't ask. I asked it, but I'm asking on your behalf. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul's talking about this. He's talking about how do you get get clean? How do you get clean on the inside? You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. He he said this in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead, cleaned us up. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory He may grant, underline that word grant. What does the word grant mean? It means give. He's going to give something to you. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. Where? In your inner being. Your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There goes that former Pharisee again giving us instruction in the things of God. Where does God do a work in your inner peace? inner being first Samuel 16 7 man looks on the outward appearance Lord looks on the heart that's in a greater context of when David was David was uh, anointed king of Israel You you might remember the story Samuel comes to anoint the next king he all he knows is I'm going to anoint a king today and it's one of Jesse's sons and Jesse has a lot of sons and man on the outside all these boys are impressive particularly the oldest and so the the full anticipation is Samuel's going to show up and the oldest son is going to be anointed the next king And when Samuel walks in the room, he says, I'm here to anoint the next king. And here's the oldest son. And Samuel says, well, I've heard from the Lord. It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. He goes down the line of all the boys, all these guys impressive on the outward appearance. And then Samuel gets to the end. He's a little bit confused. He says, well, I know I'm here to anoint the next king, but it's not any of these guys. Uh, Jesse, do you happen to have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, yeah, I do. But, you know, paraphrasing here, obviously, I mean, but, but it's the run of the litter. He's out keeping sheep. I mean. I mean, we, we knew you were here to anoint a king, but we thought so little of him that we didn't even invite him. And then David shows up. And Samuel says, there he is. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Who's David? A man after God's own heart. When God looks at your heart, Does he see a man or a woman after his own heart? Or does he see a man or a woman whose focus is on these external behavior modifications? But let's get the whole truth. If God does a work on the inside, mark it down, it will show up on the outside. We're we're not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that on the outside, nobody would ever be able to mark you as a believer in Christ. No, 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 that's not the point. The point is the only authentic demonstration on the outside that you follow Jesus is if first his spirit has been at work in your inner man and then third and finally we'll do this quickly we are to strongly warn in line with Jesus against the dangers of religion that is external only verse 45 one of the lawyers answered him so, so apparently Jesus was at the table eating with this guy, the Pharisee who invited him in his home, but he's not the only one there. One of the lawyers, now who's a lawyer? Lawyers were sort of a, um, an advanced uh, category within Pharisees. I mean, he had the whole broad group Pharisees and then the lawyers were sort of the elite of the Pharisees. They're the ones who were really the experts of, of, of the law. Uh, so, so he's a Pharisee, but he's sort of advanced as a Pharisee. And so he's got this, well, yeah, sure, you might be talking about Pharisees, Big picture, but certainly you can't be talking about me. I mean, I'm an expert of the law. Look at how high and mighty this guy is. Teacher. Here's a tip-off. The Lord Jesus is much more than a teacher. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. He's anticipating an apology. I know you didn't mean to do this, Jesus, but you actually, when you're talking about them, you're kind of insulting us too. Three times Jesus uses the word woe in this text, in this paragraph. It's the strongest word the Bible can give in condemnation. So as strongly as Jesus can put it, woe to you lawyers also. Verse 46, warning against the dangers of external religion. You load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. They upheld the requirements of the law to those who were completely incapable of upholding the law themselves. I want you to turn to one more passage so you see it. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. So if you're in Luke, you want to flip uh To the right, a couple of books. You go past John, go past Acts, and then you get to Romans. Romans chapter 8. Just look at verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Right? So let's not be surprised. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're hostile to it. That's why we hear all these things. I hear all these criticisms. and y'all been talking about this. He uh, is criticized, criticized, criticized. Because people who don't believe in Christ, they're hostile to God. Notice what it says. It does not submit to God's law. But get the full statement. Indeed, what does he say? It cannot. It's not just they do not submit. They cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And go uh, match that up with Ephesians 3 passages that we read. When the spirit of God comes in you, what does he do? He's at work where? In your inner being. So the Pharisees loaded people with burdens hard to bear. That's why Jesus says in contrast, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We cannot we cannot on our own obey the law. There's only one law keeper. His name is Jesus. That's why this teaching against Pharisee is so important because they're in essence saying that you've got to do what only Jesus could do on your behalf. Bear the law, fulfill the law, keep the law. Christ came to bear the burden for us. Come to me all who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. You know, there's nothing more burdensome than trying to externally keep the law when internally you don't have the spirit. There's not one bit of rest in external religion. The next woe is verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. They memorialized people they did not even listen to. That's what Jesus is saying. They built these great memorials and these great places to to honor men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel and Daniel, and they esteemed them, but they didn't even listen to them. They don't listen to their message They loved to speak about Abel while they lived like Cain. Abel was a man of a humble sacrifice. Cain was an arrogant murderer. And then next woe, final woe, verse 52. Woe to you lawyers. If you've taken away the key of knowledge, you did not enter yourselves and you hindered us who were entering. Knowledge is the key. The Old Testament scripture says, My people perish for lack of... Help me out. What does he say? For lack of knowledge. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. Good news of what? Knowledge. What would the Lord say about the feet of those who distort the news? He says it three times here. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Now look how hard their hearts are. Their responses. He went away from there. In other words, he said everything there was to say on the matter. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. And to provoke him to speak about many things. Lying in wait for him to catch him. It's something he might say. Christ has come to save them. And all they want to do is catch him. It's something they might say. Well, in conclusion, have you ever heard somebody say, Christianity is nothing but a bunch of rules and regulations. Anybody ever heard somebody say that? Anytime you Maybe you'll find yourself sitting at somebody's table. And they'll say, ah, that Jesus... and..." bible that's nothing but a bunch of rules and regulation well you can take him to luke 11 verses 37 and 54 and let jesus address that matter if you think if there's somebody here this morning you think that following jesus is just a bunch of rules and regulations may i say very clearly and in humility you've not read the bible for yourself because in this text we find Jesus confronting that very way of thinking and it's among his strongest condemnations in all the bible so concluding applications for us before we pray and have our time of invitation be approachable and patient be approachable and patient with critics of your faith you're going to find people who don't agree with you be patient with them at the same time be a bold spokesperson for the gospel we live in a day and age when every opinion can be boldly proclaimed except for <laughs> convictions about the gospel. So be approachable and be patient. At the same time, be bold. Discern the difference between hollow and external religion and the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in your inner being. Here's a question you can ask yourself with regularity. Do you find yourself asking more frequently, what will they think of me or what will God Think. What would God say? Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. When Christ looked on the inside of the Pharisee and the lawyer, he saw hearts in need of genuine salvation. So, we're going to stand, we'll go on to and stand together right now. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. When Jesus looked on the inward heart of the Pharisee and the lawyer, he warns them very strongly, you need authentic conversion. And so very clearly today, what we'd ask is, when the Lord looks at your heart, what does he see? Does he see a place? There's where my spirit's at work in his inner man, or does he see a man or a woman who focuses just on the external behavior? This is an important matter, so let's pause together to pray. This is our second Sunday here in Luke 11, as Jesus is offering very strong and clear warnings. And we would do well not to rush through, not to move on to the next thing, not to already. But in this moment, right now, guard yourself from distraction. We always have an invitation, which is a time to respond to the word of God as proclaimed. So we'll open our invitation. I'm going to stand here at the front. If you've got a burden, a concern, maybe you've got some questions in your heart and mind that, we might not be able to address all of them in a few moments of an invitation, but you'd say, Pastor Brandon, I, I want to sit down and talk. I want to sit down and talk with you. I've got some questions. Maybe they're related to salvation, like we talked about last week, and just some, still some things I want to get clarified. Or you've got some criticisms of the faith, and some questions. You say, I don't understand this, or this has always bothered me. Let me sit down and talk. Or maybe you've got a burden this morning, you want to pray, you could come to the front and kneel and pray on your own as you friend and a pastor I'll stand here at the front to pray with anybody who's got a need or you might say the Lord's used his word this morning to reveal very clearly to me I have been external religion only and the spirit of the living God has never been at work in my inner man I've always focused on what I could do and I've never truly rested and put my faith in what Christ has done on my behalf Father would you lead our time of invitation help us to be sober minded to be critical thinkers to be discerners of truth as revealed in the word of God this morning help us to be eager to respond bold in our responses to to your leading lead our time now Father that we'd respond appropriately in Jesus name Amen